Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of reading and preaching the Word. In this episode, Bible scholar Dr. Mark Hamilton leads us in some reflections on the passages of Scripture that many churches will hear on the fifth Sunday in Lent, 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome to a sixth in this series of podcasts on preaching in season. In, the, in this series of podcasts, we hear the text that the church will encounter during the season of Lent, and we try to explore those texts from a point of view of hopefulness at this time. Lent, as we've said already, is not just a time of giving up things that we happen to like, and it's not just a time of remorse over serious failures in our lives. It's about repentance, yes, but about something much broader than just remorse or giving up. It's about reorienting ourselves, remembering who we are and where we're going, clearing away the rubbish in our lives so that when we reach Easter and it's joyful proclamation that Christ is risen and we affirm he is risen indeed, we mean it and we understand, at least to some degree, the implications of that claim our belief that death is not the end and that evil does not triumph over good and that we are not alone. To prepare for such an announcement, we get to encounter these texts. And even if you don't think of Lent in that way and or you're part of a tradition that doesn't really respond much to Lent, the text itself, the texts themselves are still powerful and useful in because we all, regardless of our our own Christian brand, spend our times in such reassessment so that we can be prepared for joy. This week, the, tech, the church will encounter four texts, Isaiah 43, 16 through 21, Psalm 126, Philippians 3, 4 through 14, and John 12, 1 through 8. And so I'd like to make just a few comments on each one of them. The first one, of course, is, is the gospel reading, and that's the one I imagine most people will spend the most time in during this week, so I won't take too much time in this podcast. This, the text says, Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave him a dinner. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of the guests. And then the turn... Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me with you. The story is goes in several directions. John reminds us of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead partly to tie it into the previous story, the, the raising of Lazarus, but I think also partly to explain why Mary does something so radical as this. She's bought perfume, 
that is incredibly expensive. 300 denarii is more than a year's salary for a, a common worker. It's an enormous amount of money. In fact, it's surprising that one of Jesus's friends would have that kind of money. And you do have to wonder, though John doesn't tell us, how she came by it, how she had scrimped and saved until she had this, this amount of money. And then she spends it in a way that to almost everybody would seem extraordinarily wasteful. Uh, an ordinary person living in such, such incredible luxury. Uh, and she's criticized. Now, Judas Iscariot criticizes her. Uh, but John reminds us of what he is about to do and what he has been doing. And so we don't take his criticism seriously. In fact, it makes us come pull up short because we would probably have had the same criticism that this is a waste of money and that it could be better used for a lot of other things. You could feed a lot of people for a long time with this amount of money. Jesus, however, does not accept the criticism. He, of course, is very concerned about feeding the poor, and he calls his disciples to care about the poor. Of course, many of his disciples are the poor, and he himself, uh, well, he himself doesn't have a very healthy bank account. He doesn't seem to have much of anything in the way of the world's possessions. So it's, so it's not about that. It's not that he's saying, when he says the poor is always, you have the poor always with you, he's not saying, so don't take them very seriously. He's saying that's a reality we're going to keep dealing with, but there are special cases. And the special case here is that he's about to die. Now, of course, the care of the dead, especially the care of the poor dead, which Jesus will be, a, a man who is poor, who is dead, uh, is an obligation of Jesus's followers. It is an important practice that marks, uh, marks us as pious, moral, religious people. But there's more to it than that here. Mary's act foreshadows what is about to come. And so even, even the, if we've never read the gospel before, we hear a bit of the ominous music playing and we know that something is about to happen. Now, that's something that is about to happen uh, informs the, the epistles text for this week, too, though it's not something that is about to happen, but something that has happened, and that is the death, the suffering of Jesus. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, I, I want to talk to you about spiritual pedigree. And he talks about the things that are in his own life. He was an Israelite, a Jew. He was part of the people of God. He shared the stories of God's deliverance over time in the Exodus and coming back from exile and all the rest of the, the stories of David and Abraham and, and all the rest of the ancestors. Very valuable and beautiful things for the most part. And he says, I'm part of that. And, Paul do, and by the way, Paul does not devalue those things. In fact, he seems to think they are important unless they're being compared to the one thing that is most important, which is knowing Christ. He says, comparison in comparison to knowing Christ, all these things are, the NRSV says rubbish, but that's a very polite term. It, it means dung, it means this is, this is a waste product. It's not valuable. If 
the comparison is to knowing Christ. So what does he mean by knowing Christ? Well, of course, in the Gospels, the disciples come to know Christ, not only by walking around with him for several years and seeing the miracles and eating the food produced for the 5,000 and hearing the teachings and all of that, but they especially come to know Christ at Golgotha on Good Friday. And, and then again on Easter Sunday when the tomb is empty, then they begin to know Christ. And Paul, who did not uh, find himself as one of Jesus's companions in his earthly life, knows Christ in that way too, his death and his resurrection. And he, un and he understands his life as a, an imitation of that part of the life of Christ, not just the teaching, not just the miracles, but the suffering and the dying, the things that, uh, the, the, that he has experienced, the terrible things he has experienced, are simply avenues toward, his, through, toward through which he comes to know more about Jesus. And he calls on the Philippians not to despair at their own sufferings, not to try to avoid, not seek out martyrdom, certainly, but, but not to be terrified of it either, to know that Christ is at work even in our sufferings, and perhaps especially there. That's a message that I, I think is quite hopeful during this season. Uh, over the last couple of years, there's been terrible suffering, uh, more than usual. The isolation, the pandemic, the, uh, all the things associated with the pandemic have caused terrible suffering, even for those who never got sick physically, uh, a sense that um, the, the, the communities of which we're part are far more broken than we realized has become very clear to mo many of us. Paul says, in suffering, sometimes at least, there is redemption. Now, our Old Testament texts have the same sort of idea because they, they talk about the aftermath of suffering, the next, the next day, if you will, the season that follows. Psalm 126 is one of these psalms of ascents from starting in 120 and going to 134, in which uh, the, the people of Israel entering into the temple, uh, sing songs as they, as they march in this procession. In Psalm 126, which is sort of in the middle of the, middle of the cycle, uh, says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. So it's a reference to the return from the Babylonian exile. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. When it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we rejoiced. So verses 1 through 3 tell us that the psalmist is rejoicing and why, why, why he or she is rejoicing. It's not just private success, although that might be tied up into it. It's that the people of God as a whole are being renewed and restored. And then in verse 4, there's this interesting turn. God has restored, verses 1 through 3, but then the cry to God, restore. Return us, O Lord. Our restoration is not complete. It's partial. 
it is hinted at, we've begun to experience it, but it's not complete. So please restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. It's an interesting image. Um, if you remember, the Negev is a very arid region in the southern part of what's today the state of Israel. Uh, much of it is high desert. Some of it is not quite that arid. But once in a great while, there's a rainstorm. And when the rainstorm comes, the, the ravines flood. I've seen this myself after a rainstorm in the Negev. Uh, a, a, a gully that a few days before was bone dry, it looked as if it hadn't been had water in it in centuries, suddenly has waterfalls because a few inches of rain have fallen and a great stream is pouring down the pouring down the ravine and there's this waterfall. It's quite beautiful. And a few days later, of course, it's it's gone again. Restore our fortunes like the Negev, suddenly, dramatically, spectacularly, but of course not quite like the Negev because don't let it be gone again. And then verse 5, may those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. A different image, which I would understand to mean people who are afraid that the harvest will not succeed people who worry about the future will have cause not to worry so much. And of course, it's a very specific image. It's about food. People who worry about food are those who know that if things don't go just right, they may starve, that they live right on the edge of survival. And so the prayer is for those people particularly, don't, God, don't, don't let, don't let, them fail to survive. It's an image that uh, is very poignant because it's not about the other people. It's about us. It's about the, the singers of the Psalms who understand themselves to be vulnerable, who know that they've returned, but, but know that things are precarious. You have to wonder if a psalm like this isn't connected to a text like Isaiah 56 to 66, which is all about what happened after the people of God returned from the Babylonian exile and how Utopia did not quite arrive. There were still problems and, they, and things seemed quite precarious. We see this also in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, since that uh, things are better, but not really where we want them. And that rings true, doesn't it? Feels familiar. And then the last text the church will hear this week is Isaiah 43, 16 through 20. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. The, the, the song evokes the story of the Exodus. The path through the mighty waters is a reference to the parting of the Red Sea in uh, Exodus 15, and of course Exodus 14 and 15, I should say, who brings out chariot and horse. So that, that makes it very clear that that's what we're talking about. Army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Actually, that sequence of verbs sort of reminds you of Exodus 15 as the, as the Egyptians sink into the sea where they are drowning. Uh, it's not the same verbs, it's not exactly the same imagery, but it's it's in a way a kind of remastering of the older text. 
Do not remember. Now, so that's the first thing. We address God as the God who brings the Exodus. But then the line in verse 18 is, do not remember the former things. Okay, forget about Exodus for a minute. Of course, the, 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 the prophet does not want the people to forget about the former things, really. But let's not just dwell on the distant past. Let's recognize that the God who saved our, our remote ancestors is the same God we're praying to now. And the God who saved them and remembered their bondage remembers our bondage and can save us. And so, uh, verse 19, God speaking, I'm about to do a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Instead of making dry land through the sea, he will make water paths through the dry land. It's an interesting sort of, sort of photographic negative of the older story. Uh, which is the negative and which is the positive? It, it's hard to say. But it's the same story, but a different story as well. And there will be a return home. The wild animals will honor me. It's so we, we do what this poem and poet in Isaiah 40 to 55 so often does. You take an image and then you drift to the, uh, the next image. It's very closely related and the next and the next. You sort of riff along these, along these paths that have been laid out by the imagery. So if you're wandering through the desert, you encounter animals that are beyond human control and possibly dangerous, uh, the jackals and the ostriches. I will give water in the wilderness, rivers in the de desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Which, of course, also is a, an exodus theme. Uh, the, the, the crossing of the wilderness is part of the story of the exodus. And so it is, again, the old story, but, but a new story, a new, new version, a, a remaking of the old story. The people whom I form for myself so they may declare my praise. That, that last line is very important because it gets to what the book of Isaiah thinks uh, the people of God are supposed to be. On the one hand, they are the ones formed by God. It's language that's even older than the Exodus. It's the language of the creation of the world. It's the language of the making of the first human beings. God has formed these people just as he did Adam and Eve, uh, and has done so for a particular purpose, so they can declare his praise. They're not slaves who toil in meaningless tasks. Uh, they are not strangers who don't know the name of this God or this God's capacities. They are this God's people, and their job is to offer praise. Now, I think sometimes people misunderstand that language about praise in the Bible. Why does God need our praise? Uh, is God insecure? We ask kind of those sorts of questions, which I, I think are understandable, but really misguided questions. Our job as human beings is to tell the truth, to, to try to describe reality as best we can. And as believers, part of that reality that we know about is the saving work of God. So to declare that saving work of God is not, you know, doesn't make God feel better or boost his fragile ego. That's 
pretty silly way to read it. Uh, it makes us better. It brings us into a relationship in which we are telling the truth. And we are telling each other and ourselves the truth so that we know how to function in a world in which many people tell lies, including sometimes believers, unfortunately, tell lies, uh, in which truth is a is sometimes too rare a commodity and for which many people pay a very high price. So the praise of God is, is a way of saying this is, this is the truth about the world. The, the pretensions to human power that we see, whether in the Babylonian Empire or any of its many successors, are unreal, untrue. The claim that we are the masters of the world is untrue. The claim that we can live boldly, well, the ancients called it eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The claim that we can live boldly without any regard for the well-being of those around us is untrue. And so this text, like the others we've read, call us to a, a vision of truth that is broad and deep and powerful and beautiful. So for the fifth Sunday in Lent, we hear these texts and we hear them as repairing texts that prepare us for joy. Thank you for listening. I look forward to any conversations we may have about this in the future. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.